When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Breaking the internet. In the year 2020, this is how we describe a moment like the world reacting to that Harry Styles Vogue cover, or BTS doing literally anything. In the age of social media, shutting down pretty much all other online conversation is a barometer for success, or equally an indicator that someone's getting cancelled. But in the year 2000, the web was still in its formative stages. Cultural moments were part of making the internet. We're talking, of course, about the green Versace dress J-Lo wore to the Grammys in February 2000. The one that had so many people searching for it that it inspired a developer to invent Google Images. For better or worse, award shows in general play a huge part in how we interact with and remember culture. From MTV's Video Music Awards in September through to the Academy Awards in March, we're treated to nearly six months of red carpet looks, tearful acceptance speeches, and, if we're lucky, a healthy dose of celeb drama. Would anybody like to see me fight Liam? Now, are you going to do it or are you going to pussy out? Of course, these ceremonies also happen to be an opportunity to celebrate the best art of that year, which is why, as a fitting close to the first series of 2020, we're going to be handing out a few awards of our own. Join us as we commemorate the best and worst pop culture from the year 2000. Welcome to 2020, a pop culture podcast by Message Heard. I'm Tara Joshi. And I'm Zimran Hans. This is the podcast where we go back to some of the biggest pop culture moments from 20 years ago and re-examine them from a fresh critical perspective. This is our last episode of the series. If you're a new listener, we have a whole back catalogue of episodes on 2000s gems like Gilmore Girls, The Sims and Craig David. Today, we're talking about award season and picking our personal winners and losers of 2000. We'll be getting into our favourite films, albums, and the year's best on stage performance. We'll also be looking at whether the pop culture we think is worth celebrating was recognised at the time. We'll be casting our minds back to the MTV Video Music Awards, the Brits, the Grammys, the Golden Globes, the Oscars, and the BAFTAs. Now, As my fellow award season geeks will know, many of the ceremonies that commemorate films, music and TV from the year 2000 actually took place in 2001. 
We thought it was important to focus on the culture that came out of the year 2000, and so the awards season we're covering ranges from the VMAs in September 2000 through to the Oscars in March 2001. So if any of the sharp-eared among you catch us talking about 2001, that's why. And with our date disclaimer out the way, it's on with the show. We can't talk about award shows without mentioning the red carpet. The looks, the schmoozing, the inane celebrity interviews. Who here among us doesn't love watching e-red carpet before going to bed? Amen. The Y2K red carpet looks are unmatched. Fur trimming, leather, PVC, rhinestones, extremely tight snakeskin, and that's just in sync at the VMAs. Also Tara's one-time Facebook cover photo, I'll have you know. What happens on the red carpet is often a huge cultural moment in and of itself. At the top of the episode, we mentioned JLo's green Versace dress at the 2000 Grammys. Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, wrote in 2015, At the time, it was the most popular search query we had ever seen, but we had no surefire way of getting users exactly what they wanted, JLo wearing that dress. Google image search was born. As well as being a vehicle for huge fashion moments, I love how award ceremonies document surreal interactions between legends that we might otherwise never see. So there's this amazing clip of Beyonce interviewing Aaliyah at the 2000 MTV Movie Awards. What are you looking forward to seeing? Tonight? Tonight, yes. Um, I want to see D'Angelo perform. Girl, I'm with you because you, you know, know he's fine. He's fine. He's Let hot. <laughs> All right, back to you, Cisco. Back to you, Cisco. That is incredible. Speaking of Beyonce, we also need to shout out Miss Tina for the coordinated Destiny's Child looks at any given ceremony that year. And, of course, we can't not mention Bjork's swan dress at the 2001 Academy Awards. The red carpet alone gives us so much to talk about. But while I'm ready to rank every Britney look from good to great, I think it's time to get into the ceremonies. Now for our first category, Best New Artist. At the Grammys a year previously, this was hotly contested between Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears, two pop acts who helped create the mould for the early noughties pop star. It was, ultimately, Christina who would win on the night. But in February 2001, that's the Grammy ceremonies celebrating music from the year 2000, the award for Best New Act went to Shelby Lynn? Yeah, maybe she's one for the heads, but not exactly a household name. It feels pretty wild that she won against Jill Scott. Similarly controversial choices were made at the Brit Awards that year. As those of you who have listened to our Craig David episode already know, the Southampton teen missed out on all six of his nominations on the night, including Best Breakthrough Act, which he lost to the boy band A1. Much as I am happy to defend A1 and Ben's curtain haircut, it was a questionable choice. Noel Gallagher, of Oasis fame, was on stage at the Brits that night, presenting an award to U2, and he butted in to say, Hello. This award ceremony over the years has been accused of not having a sense of humour, but then when you see A1 winning Best Newcomer, you know that somebody's taken a piss somewhere. <laughs> so mean that he said it on stage. 
I love the Brit Awards for that kind of thing, though. Particularly, like, this era of Brit Awards. It's just so messy. He's classic Noel Gallagher as well. He is always a messy bitch looking for drama. Anyway, I think it's fair to say that neither Shelby nor A1 would be our first choice for this award. So, Tara, who's your best new act of the year 2000? And who are some of your honourable mentions? So... For me, I would say the best new act to rise in the year 2000 was a little group known as the Sugar Babes, who uh, the original iteration of Sugar Babes put out a song called Overload in 2000. It's a great song. So Sugar Babes, much like our gals Destiny's Child, are one of those girl groups who have many different versions. So the original version is Moutier, Keisha and Siobhan. And Siobhan gets sidled out of the group pretty quickly after this moment. So this is just a reminder of that what I think is one of the best versions of Sugar Babes. Um, Overload is like an incredible debut single. And I do love other versions of Sugar Babes. I think they're like one of the most consistent pop groups that Britain has. Yeah, I feel like Sugar Babes maybe like took a little while to get going. I feel like around 2003 was when they were really having their moment. But in 2000, maybe they're just still like breaking through. Mm. So I don't know, like when we're saying best new artist first, it's like breakthrough. I guess that's two different things as well, isn't it? No, no, I think they definitely count in this category. Who who are some of their like contemporaries? Who are some other people who were kind of coming through at this moment here in the UK? Well... I feel like we can't not talk about Samantha Mumba. Justice for Samantha Mumba. I don't know what she's up to now, but I want to know. I think she's one of the presenters on Loose Women. and okay, she, so she's had a career pivot. Career pivot, but equally she was working on an album with people like M&EK and like other like quite respected pop songwriters. And she was meant to put it out last year and it didn't happen. So lots of mysteries around her career. She's had a lot of weird like label mishaps. Um... I feel like she's kind of a classic example of how a lot of black women solo artists at that time got really messed around by labels who didn't really know what to do with them. Yeah, and she was also a teen pop star as well, right? So I put her in the kind of similar category as someone like Billy Piper. Yeah, 100%. So she, so she's Irish and she was first discovered via an Irish talent show, which surreally Louis Walsh was one of the judges on. So that's how she first broke into music. And then a couple years later was when her first single and first album came out. The single is Gotta Tell You, right? Yeah, I think that's the name of the album as well. And honestly, like, I don't feel like people talk about her enough. Like, that song was great. Some of the other songs on the album were great. Yeah, I I feel like she had that one album and, and then she sort of slightly disappeared. And it's strange because I don't necessarily associate her with the noughties, but that song is so of the moment. Um, what about Across the Pond? Who are some like North American stars that were kind of breaking through at that time? So 2000 sees the release of a little album called Country Grammar. Yes. By a rapper called Nelly. You may recognize him as a very handsome man who wears a plaster on his face. For reasons that are unclear at best, um, but it has, I would argue probably most of his biggest singles are on this album. So Country Grammar, of course, also Hot in Here, Ride With Me. All songs that can only be described as school disco classics. 
Really and truly, yeah. Nelly, I don't think we were his target audience. And yet his music soundtracked our childhoods. Yeah, resonated with people living in suburban England, so... And he was pretty huge over here and in the US. Yeah, for sure. And I think he's one of those people now who, you know, I don't want to lump him in with Craig David, but I think a lot of people's interest in Nelly rides on that nostalgia thing as well. Completely. Um, I think a couple of other artists that I want to shout out in the kind of breakthrough debut best new artist category um, are Jill Scott, who her debut album, Who is Jill Scott? Words and Sounds, Volume 1, came out in the year 2000. I think it did pretty well critically. It was nominated for Grammys. I think she's somebody who was really embraced by the African-American community, probably by virtue of how she came up. She was a spoken word poet. She came up through the kind of Philly scene with The Roots and Questlove. And she is just a really kind of interesting singer-songwriter. But I don't think that she necessarily fitted into the sort of sexy... I was going to say, I feel like her music is quite sexy. Her, Her music's very sexy and it's also her lyrics are quite sexual. But I think she wasn't sort of commercial. She's way more in a kind of neo-soul category. And I think like, you know, she she wasn't really considered pop at the time. She actually kind of came back into consciousness this year when she did a, a lockdown versus with Erica Badu. And, you know, I think people like to think of those two artists as kind of rivals because Jill had worked on she actually has a co-writing credit on the song you got me which erica does the vocals on with the roots um and yeah they ended up going with erica rather than jill and so i think people remember that and they think of them as rivals but really that versus was amazing to watch because it's just pure love between the two of them but yeah the big songs from that record are getting in the way and he loves me my favorite track is The Way, which is very corny, but I love it. Um, and yeah, I think the production still holds up on that album. It's it's well worth kind of going back to. And it's really kind of assured for a debut. Yeah. So I guess we mentioned earlier, but she was nominated for Best New Artist at the Grammys that year. But I feel like the Grammys sort of consistently has a problem when it comes to actually recognizing black artists. That Yeah, they often get relegated to like Best R&B Act or best R&B video, even if they're an artist who kind of straddles pop and R&B. And unfortunately, that's still true in 2020. So, you know, some things don't change. Who else was coming out of the States at the time? Well, she didn't come out of the States. She came out of Canada. But 2000 was also the year that Nelly Furtado's debut album, Woe Nelly, came out. And I think this is a good record. You know, the songs Turn Off the Light, Show on the Radio, I'm Like a Bird, obviously. And like, they're pretty good singles that still kind of hold up as these very quintessentially noughties pop records. But I think she struggled a little bit when she came out because people didn't know how to market her. She's half Portuguese and she's got these kind of folk influences going on in her work and you know she was very young at the time I think she was 21 but she wasn't really a kind of Britney or Christina a lot of people compared her to Macy Gray because she was a more kind of singer-songwriter type that's bizarre yeah and, and also she's got quite like a unique voice and so maybe that's why people thought perhaps she's more like adult contemporary but she was more she was more fun more playful more pop than that as well 
I would highly recommend going back to the album and listening to the track Party. You'll enjoy it. Yeah, I got that album for Christmas that year, I think. I feel like I remember unwrapping it and um, it did bring me so much joy. And, you know, I guess admittedly with some of the artists that you talk about from this era as being best new artist with someone like Nelly you know he becomes a nostalgia thing rather than someone who's necessarily relevant later on in the 2010s but Nelly Furtado her influence only becomes greater as it goes on like right now in 2020 like maybe not so much but she's kind of interesting though I mean like I think a lot of people don't really love this first album and and the one that was really huge for her was the one that she did with Timberland Loose which has Promiscuous Girl and Say It Right um, and then that comes a little bit later and then she went on to do some work with Dev Hines in the kind of later 2010s and she's still working and she's still interesting but yeah I think she's an artist who has sort of developed with the times rather than kind of stayed like frozen in a particular period like Nelly. Um, I am going to give my award to Nelly Furtado. I think she is still interesting and I really, really like that record whenever I look back on it. I I think for me, Nelly Furtado ultimately becomes more interesting a little bit later on. So I feel like I'm going to, yeah, I'm, I'm giving it to Sugar Babes. I don't know why I was pretending it would be any other way or why I bothered talking about anyone else because it was just going to be them. Without subjecting you to an unrehearsed and criminally unfunny comedy bit between two stars who have never even spoken to each other before stepping on stage, let's move on to our next category, Best Film. Okay, Simran, you're the film critic here. So what are your nominees for Best Film of 2000? So... Tara and I actually put together a list of our top 10 films from the year 2000 for Sight and Sound magazine. It's got films on it like In the Mood for Love, Beau Travai, Yee Yee by Edward Yang. Those three films are from Hong Kong, France and Taiwan respectively. And yes, I'm counting Beau Travai here even though it premiered at Cannes in 1999 because it was released in July 2000 here in the UK. I wouldn't expect those kind of movies to be recognized by the Oscars. So I think we can sort of put them in a box. It's really hard to, when we're talking about mainstream pop culture, to know where to draw the line between sort of more alternative and more independent, um, particularly in the case of film, it's hard to draw the line between kind of more alternative or more independent or more world cinema because so much of that stuff didn't cross over in the way that it does now. But some other films that I think are really strong from the year 2000 that actually were not included in any kind of mainstream awarding body shortlist are Gina Prince-Bythewood's Love and Basketball and Spike Lee's Bamboozled. I don't think it's a coincidence that both of those directors are black. Okay, so I don't know anything about either of these films, so you won't have to fill me in. Okay, so Love and Basketball is Gina Prince-Bythewood's first feature. It stars Omar Epps and Sanaa Lathan as childhood best friends turned lovers, both trying to make it as pro basketball players, hence the title Love and Basketball. It's got an amazing soundtrack. There is the Maxwell cover of This Woman's Worth by Kate Bush, deployed expertly in a love scene. It's really cute. It's really romantic. There's complex female characters. 
it's just this really kind of thoughtful, interesting, moving film about a girl's ambition and how she has to like manage her emotions and her expectations. And she wants love, but also she wants to like have her own life. And I just, I think this movie is so great. Um, if you kind of are a sucker for romantic movies, I would recommend it. I was going to say, this sounds very me and I'm furious at myself for not having watched that yet. It's, it's a total comfort movie for me. I'd put it in like a similar category as When Harry Met Sally. And actually Gina Prince-Bythewood said herself that she wanted to make a black When Harry Met Sally. It's not really a romantic comedy. It's sort of more dramatic, but um, it's it kind of hits that same nostalgic sweet spot for me. Okay, and what about Bamboozled? So Bamboozled, uh, Spike Lee is a really interesting Marmite filmmaker and Bamboozled is one of his weirdest movies. I also think it's one of his most difficult and kind of challenging films and people didn't really know what to do with it at the time. I think if it's released now and actually it's had a kind of re-release through the Criterion Collection, so I feel like it's been sort of retroactively canonized but i feel like if it was released now people would have a totally different reaction to it the basic plot is it's a satire about a black tv executive who decides that he's gonna make this show that is really problematic and racist it's like a minstrel show um so the the whole kind of theme of the film is blackface in the media and so this black character decides to sort of exploit himself in the hopes of getting fired so then he can have a really good payout and he can also expose his racist white boss but plot twist the show becomes massively successful because of course the audience is racist and so it's quite uncomfortable but it's also like very funny like the comedy is very raw and it is just so kind of prescient and strangely relevant to the culture that we live in today. And I think, you know, Spike Lee was really ahead of his time being able to kind of hit on that so sharply in the year 2000. So both of those sound amazing, but I guess I'm curious then about what was actually nominated that year. So I know that Ridley Scott's Gladiator won Best Film at the Golden Globes, the BAFTAs and the Oscars, but it's not in our list. So what about it didn't do it for you? Well, first of all, I'd just like to point out that for anybody who enjoys going on YouTube and looking at the clips of the award seasons in retrospect, watch any of the ones that have Ridley Scott. He looks so pissed off all the time. He won so many awards. Why was he so mad? I don't know. The reason why he's not on the list is because, actually, I've never seen Gladiator. I should be shocked by this, but I have also never watched Gladiator. So I feel like, like, what are we even doing making a podcast about 2000? Russell Crowe swanning around in a skirt, not that interesting to me. So I I did Ancient History at uni and I still didn't care about this film, so... Um, But yeah, this film did really well. I don't know what it was about it without having seen it. I can talk a little bit about some of the other films that were kind of big hitters that year. There was Billy Elliot, which was nominated for a bunch of BAFTAs, Jamie Bell... Uh, won Best Actor at the BAFTAs. Chocolat, starring Juliette Binoche and Johnny Depp. 
Uh, that is a film that I know weirdly well because we had it on DVD and my mum really liked it. So we I, just watched it loads. I literally had the exact same thing with that film. I watched that so many times with my mum. Mums love it. Yeah. And, you know, it's just infuriating what Johnny Depp. Let's not even go yeah, there. Not Let's not even go there. But um, I do think like as a kind of prestige romantic, that was very mum core. Uh <laughs> There was also Erin Brockovich, which uh, won Julia Roberts Best Actress at the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes, and the Oscars. This was her first Oscar after she had been nominated twice before for Pretty Woman and Steel Magnolias. Have you seen Erin Brockovich? So good. It is so good. I watched this film for the first time on a plane and I'd never seen it. And I'm quite a like big Julia Roberts fan, but I had never seen this movie. I was amazed at how good it is. And, you know, her speech at the end where she sort of wins the check, spoilers, uh, <laughs> was sort of so satisfying. It's, it's really strange when you kind of, you know, these moments from big movies out of context and then you see them within the body of the film and it, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Film was directed by Steven Soderbergh, who also was nominated for a bunch of awards for Traffic in the same year. Unusual for a director to release two films in the same year, but there are no rules. Steven Soderbergh does what he wants. Um, also, I'll, I'll just give you a plot summary of Erin um, Brockovich, just in case you need it. For those who haven't seen it, Erin Brockovich is about an unemployed single mum who wears lots of very sexy, trashy outfits. And she sort of goes and begs for a job as the secretary to a lawyer. And then she becomes quite passionately involved in a case where she's kind of fighting for the rights of local people whose water has been poisoned by a corporation. It is really good. I would highly recommend going back and watching it. The other big movie from the kind of Oscars, BAFTAs, Globes award season is Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I have actually never seen that film either. I feel like th this this section is just really damning on like my cultural viewing. Like films I watched in the year 2000 are like Miss Congeniality and Bring It On, that's it. But I feel like they're great, but they're not contenders for this kind of thing. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, like those films as Hollywood blockbusters still hold up for me. I think they're both exceptionally good. I think Peyton Reed, who directed Bring It On, went on to uh, make Down With Love couple oh, of years no later which i think is a massively underrated film so i wouldn't be too hard on yourself there tara um but crouching tiger hidden dragon i think is important to mention because it was a real turning point in hollywood so it's a, a martial arts wuxia film set in 18th century china and it was hollywood's attempt to appeal to a global market it was an international co-production, so the money came from the US, China, Taiwan, and also Hong Kong. It's in Mandarin Chinese, and it's got English subtitles, but the script was co-written by an American screenwriter, James Seamus, who has made a bunch of Hollywood movies. Um, its most famous scene, which even if you haven't seen the movie, Tara, you probably would kind of know this image of the two kind of main actors, Chow Yun-Fat and Zhang Ziyi having like a, a sword fight in the treetops. So they're sort of dressed in white and they're kind of dancing almost on top of these bamboo trees. It's like really incredible special effects. And these kind of wire effects were sort of fairly common within Chinese cinema, but they hadn't really been transposed to Hollywood yet. And so people were really wowed by, by this. The film was also choreographed by Yun Wu Ping, who had done The Matrix the year before. So you see a little bit of a trend happening there. 
And I think people just really responded to the kind of delicacy and the beauty and the spectacle of that kind of martial arts film versus the sort of galumphing action sequences in something like Gladiator, right? Galumphing is an excellent word. I have not heard that word before, but I immediately know what it means. So love that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of interested about like in terms of the aftermath of that film. Like, do we start to see a more international facing Hollywood or? Well, I think there's an explosion of martial arts films in the early noughties that are probably the direct product of the success of that film. Um, But I I don't know if we can say that it really helped those key actors to break through. I think it just more kind of showed that Hollywood needed to accept that globalization was happening and expand their reach outside of the Western world. I don't know if... um, if there's like another point in the last 20 years where that changed again, maybe you see it with the Marvel movies. What What about you, Tara? You know, you say that you were more kind of like across the, the mainstream contenders. Is there anything that really stands out to you from that year? Um, I mean, obviously you spoke about Aaron Brockovich and I do think that that really holds up. And I, I think in terms of the issues that it discusses, like unfortunately they're just as relevant in america today like one of my best friends is a lawyer and she follows erin brockovich on social media and she's still out there doing all this work about contaminated water in america um which is depressing but i think really speaks to the fact that that film was actually quite important to do and like make people aware of stuff like that i guess as much as it just being some really great acting from julia roberts and the other film that i wanted to shout out was is it you can count on me yeah, the Kenneth Lonergan movie. Yes. Um, so Laura Linney, Mark Ruffalo, um, it, it's just... A young Kieran Culkin of succession fame. He's in that, right? Yeah, he is. He's the kid, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so really something for everyone in that film. And I just think it's just some really great acting. I haven't watched it in years, but I'm just thinking about films I know came out in 2000. And... Yeah, it's like a family drama about a brother and a sister. Uh, and it's so tender mm. also something i watched with my mum. so you know shout out my mum. you can count on me as a real deep cut I, you've got more film knowledge than you know tara oh, i'll take that i'll take that um so what's getting the award what's getting the award well i feel like honestly like the the passion with which you've spoken about some of these films i, I do kind of want to hand this one over to you thank you tara i was hoping you'd say that <laughs> <laughs> i'd like to give the 2020 Best Film Award to Love and Basketball. I would have loved to have done a full episode on this film. I think it's amazing and well worth revisiting. So I'm conscious that while we spent an episode talking about film soundtracks and how original film songs were often bait for awards, we didn't actually talk about albums from 2000 in this series. I mean, that's a real born to do it erasure, but okay. Yeah, okay, of course. Our guy Craig David put his astonishing debut out into the world in 2000. But meanwhile, the major best album awards went to Coldplay's Parachutes at the Brits, 
while at the Grammys, Steely Dan's Two Against Nature won. I don't know about you, Simran, but I cannot personally claim to be familiar with either of these albums. You know, I am not going to pretend that I'm unfamiliar with that Coldplay album because I am. However, I don't know if I would put it in my kind of top 10 from the year 2000. I think there are many other worthy contenders. One of the most slept on albums from the year 2000, I think, is Madonna's Music. I think people don't really like this record that much or don't remember it that well because it comes after Ray of Light in 1998, which was sort of more of a a U-turn for her and and more of a big moment. Um, And people would be right, you know, music is no Ray of Light. But it's playful. Um, there's her whole kind of like ironic cowboy aesthetic going on. Yeah, it's on. the sort of denim cowboy look, right? That's what exactly. I remember of this album. It, exactly. It's, denim cowboy is precisely what she is. Um, and it's a step away from the sort of sincerity of her Kabbalah spiritual moment that she was having in the 90s. I think the production is quite interesting. It's got that like robotic, daft punk kind of hard edge sound to it. You can kind of hear it in the computerized chipmunk backing vocals on Impressive Instant. Um, And Don't Tell Me is a masterpiece. Oh, that's such a good song. I forgot about that song. There's also her underrated cover of American Pie by Don McLean. Being completely honest, that was the first time I had heard the song American Pie. You know, I didn't realize it was a cover. Exactly. So, you know, I think this this record is, is actually quite fun still to listen to. I would recommend it. Speaking of unforgettable covers, we have to talk about Britney Spears' Rolling Stones cover of Satisfaction on the Oops I Did It Again album, also a 2000 gem. It's not my favourite cover. I'm going to just put that out there right now. It's not my favourite Britney album. I'm sorry. What? How do you remember this album? Because what I remember about it is the cover where she's wearing this kind of matching brown crop top and sort of hip-hugging low-rise trousers and she's kind of peering through a beaded curtain. Yeah, that image is quite a strong image, to be fair. I had this on CD, so that's how I remember it. Um, I don't think I did have this one on CD, you know. Like, obviously, I loved the singles from this album. You know, I actually probably loved more than the singles, but I don't think I owned this. I think it was more if I went to a friend's house and they were playing it. But I don't know. It's got some incredible pop songs on it. To so be- this is like not key Britney for you at all even though it has tracks like lucky oops i did it again stronger yeah okay the, the, the way that simon is looking at me right now i just feel like I, I i should be having a stronger reaction to these songs i oops i did it again and lucky yes great songs um and i think they tell us quite a lot about britney but for me i guess my favorite britney album is probably britney but, um, it, you know, I think it's a, it's a great album. I think it holds up and it does a really good job of like cementing what Britney is at the, this time. And I do think it's really fascinating how many albums she puts out during this period of time, you know, over the coming years, like her output is astonishing. And I guess the looks from this album as well. well yeah, it's it's interesting to kind of like hear you talk about this record in terms of like the pop culture ephemera that surrounded it, right? We think of the videos for Oops, I Did It Again and for Lucky and for Stronger, or we think about kind of where she was and who she was in the culture and what she represented and, you know, the magazine covers. But actually, and musically, maybe it's not her most interesting work. That's probably still to come. Um, what are some other records from 2000 that you think deserve all the awards? 
So my favorite album of 2000 is Outkast, Stankonia, which I feel like is really saying something because it's not even my favorite Outkast album. It's just like a real testament to how incredible they are and how game-changing what they're doing is. So this is like, it's just such a weird album. So at this point, they're already riding high off, like this is like their fourth album and they've popularized what is ultimately like a very strange Southern rap sound. Like they're making hip hop like no one else is. And then they've got like everyone's eyes on them and they could have just ridden off that wave. And instead they come out with this pretty weird album that's like got a lot of like psych funk kind of sounds on it. Just it's very difficult to like place it sonically because there's so much going on with it. And in interviews at the time, you know, they're really careful about not referencing rap that they've been listening to so like big boy talks about how much he's been listening to kate bush for example um i love that exactly and like andre 3000 at this point he's like listening to loads of drum and bass down tempo that kind of thing so i think it really speaks to like they're obviously both so well versed in rap but what they're trying to do with it is like i guess kind of like an early look at the ways in which genre starts to dissolve in 2020 even. What is your standout track from Stankonia? I think that just because I think it's so, just like the moment that it had and what it went on to mean, B.O.B., Bombs Over Baghdad. So it comes out in the year 2000 and it's kind of like a quasi protest song about in the 90s American intervention in the Middle East. But obviously this is before 2001 and 9-11. This is before the Bush invasion of Iraq and it becomes weirdly prescient and then it becomes a protest song but then it's a really interesting insight I think into how the intention behind a song um, can get pulled away from what a creator had in mind. There's an interesting video that Outkast put out about this a few weeks ago I think because the anniversary just happened. They talk about how soldiers from the states going to the middle east literally bombing baghdad listening to this song almost as like a hype song and they're like singing along to it which is just kind of scary and weird as an insight into what your intention with a song can be versus where it goes but i also think it speaks to just the universal appeal of outcast that it could have that kind of resonance even with the people it's meant to be fighting against really Another great record from that year is PJ Harvey's Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea, um, which has the amazing Tom York duet, This Mess We're In. I think that song appeals to me more than the whole of the Kid A album, to be honest. Kid A also came out that year, but um, I respect that opinion. Also, the album features the song You Said Something, which I think is the ultimate walking in the streets alone with headphones on sad song. Um, but you know, people were skeptical about this album because of how joyful Polly sounded and just how accessible that record was. I guess I also very quickly wanted to shout out All Saints' second album, which came out this year, which was Saints and Sinners. As an overall album, I'm not sure that it does that much for me, but there are two tracks, right? There are two tracks that are just incredible. So we've spoken about film soundtracks already this series, and how can you not think about Pure Shores when you think about the year 2000. It's a phenomenal song. Um, The orbital production, it just immediately takes you to that beach, I think. Completely. And if you think of Pure Shores as one side of the coin, Black Coffee is the other. Um, Both of them produced by William Orbit and both have that like 
totally you're so right to like describe it that way that totally transportive kind of floating naughty sound to them so your 2020 best album winner is stanconia by outcast without a doubt yes Now on to what is perhaps one of the evening's most disputed categories, best music video. In our very first episode, we did a deep dive onto the unforgettable video for Destiny's Child's Say My Name, which was nominated for best pop video at the MTV VMAs. It lost out to NSYNC's Bye Bye Bye, although it did win the award for best R&B video. Tara, this was the golden age of the music video. What are some of your nominees? Let's talk about Cisco Thong Song, which opens with this harrowing shot, I think, of Cisco's daughter rifling through a shopping bag and finding a red thong and being like, Daddy, what is this? And Cisco gives the camera a knowing look and we're transported on this journey with him as we celebrate the thong. It is so Miami. Everything about this video screams kind of noughties excess. You've got the cars, you've got the shell suits, you've got Cisco swiveling through the air like a cheerleader. You've got Ja Rule for reasons that are unclear. Um, LL Cool J's there. There's a, a string orchestra. Just everything, like UV light. It, it's so excessive and I love it. Uh, what about the video for Blink-182? all the small things it's such a fun video um and explain the concept for those who haven't seen it so throughout the 90s you have the kind of very sincere boy band videos like everyone dressed in white lots of slow-mo and getting off a plane and blink 182 are making fun of those tropes in this video it's super funny and cute i don't know (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) what's there to say about it uh the kind of video that blink 182 were making fun of is the kind of video that was performed in absolute sincerity by bands like Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, and my personal sort of favorite tragedy of the noughties, 98 Degrees. Do you remember them, Tara? I actually have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, so 98 Degrees was Nick Lachey's boy band. Nick Nick Lachey... Husband to Jessica Simpson, co-star of the MTV show Newlyweds. I don't know if you remember the video for Just One Night, Una Noche. It's starting to come back to me. I, I, the Nick Lachey link is starting to galaxy brain me right now. For those of you who don't remember this iconic and terrible video, it's got all of the boys from 98 Degrees who all look the same, wearing these white linen shirts. They're on a sort of Mexican lads holiday. There's dance routines, there's fireworks. They're kind of performing in front of these Mayan ruins. I just wanted to ask the question, did 98 Degrees Una Noche walk so Justin Timberlake's Senorita could run. Uh, One thing upon watching the video for Una Noche, again, that I'm kind of questioning is the standard of hotness in the noughties. So we can ask that question, but while watching that video, I would agree that these dudes all look the exact same and it's very weird. 
Equally, 2000 gives us a video by a little someone called D'Angelo. Oh yes, yes it does. The greatest video of the year 2000. I am not having any questions asked about this. <laughs> D'Angelo's Untitled, How Does It Feel, is an incredible song. Voodoo is an incredible record. And the video directed by Paul Hunter is also just sort of one of the sexiest most kind of vulnerable direct music videos i think i've ever seen oh my god it's just wow it is wow so uh for anybody who is like not familiar with it pause the podcast go and watch it come back thank us later um it features d'angelo sort of naked from the waist up um, and he's got these kind of Adonis-like glistening abs. It's implied that he may also be naked from the waist down, although obviously the camera doesn't go there. So it's very suggestive. And it's got this sort of like really minimal backdrop, like a black background. And it is just so kind of, it's just so direct. It's really like sensual. It zooms in on his body, like pans different parts of his torso and it's an example of a video, unfortunately, where even though it did have such an impact, the artist himself really did not like it. Yeah, it's a real shame because the song as well is is such a great song that really holds up, very kind of Prince inspired. Um, also, fun fact about that song is that, uh, you know, when he sort of screams and climaxes at the end of the song and it cuts off very abruptly, apparently that's just because they ran out of tape in the studio. No way. But um, the effect of the video was that it turned D'Angelo into a huge sex symbol. And people became less interested in him as a musician. I think the attention was a lot for him when he was in a really dark place. And he ended up taking a 14-year hiatus from music. So was our collective thirst worth it? I'm not sure. I don't know if the thirst was worth it. But I do think that it is the best video from the year 2000. So earlier we touched on Britney's aesthetics from this era and I feel like we can't not talk about her video at this time. Oops, I Did It Again gives us the red leather turtleneck catsuit. Tara, right now you can't see her, but is wearing a red turtleneck. It's in honor of Britney in this video, of course. And actually, I feel like when we were first talking about doing this podcast, I think Simran told me that she can do the whole spoken word dialogue in this video off by heart. Have uh, I made this I up? I can do it and I'm not going to. <laughs> oh. Oh. But uh, the video uh, has this really funny, cute sort of nod to Titanic, which was sort of in the culture. And uh... fine, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Also, in that year, Britney released the video for Lucky, which I think is underrated and also kind of takes on a dark significance given everything that Britney Spears has kind of gone through in the media and the free Britney movement. In the video, her kind of alter ego is this glamorous movie star called Lucky. And uh, actually, she's very lonely and sad and depressed and can't really cope with the attention that's lavished on her feels very true to Britney's own trajectory and is, is actually quite sad looking back on it. It is really sad. It's also interesting I think because that's actually a theme in a lot of her work and she does like I think on pretty much every album there is something that delves into that and yet it feels like it's only relatively recently that people have actually started having serious conversations and acknowledgements of everything that she has been through. 
becoming clear that awarding bodies don't always get it right. However, that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the ceremonies. We've touched on the red carpet looks, the onstage drama, and my personal favourite part, the bizarre musical mashups. So when it comes to award show performances, it's fair to say that the MTV Video Music Awards are pop's biggest stage, with artists attempting to scandalise audiences and one-up the acts that played the year before. In later years, this would mean Lady Gaga dangling above her dancers covered in fake blood, Britney with a live python wrapped around her neck as she performed Slave for You, and of course the infamous Madonna Britney and Madonna Christina Snog. 2000 was not exactly a banner year in terms of legendary VMA performances. Christina Aguilera performed with Fred Durst, don't know why. They mixed Fighter into Limp Biscuits, Living It Up. Have no desire to ever hear that. It's horrible and she moshes on stage. Uh, I kind of want to see that. <laughs> it also had Eminem performing Slim Shady with a bunch of dudes who were sort of all dressed as Marshall Mathers, wearing kind of their blonde buzz cuts, white t-shirts, blue jeans, all in a row as a kind of performance stunt. I quite like the concept of that. I know that one day we'll talk about Eminem, but this era of Eminem, I think, is kind of interesting. If I'm not using the word good, there's a reason. Um, Also, we mentioned already Britney's cover of Satisfaction. Yes, which she performs at the VMAs, and she does it as a mashup with Oops, I Did It Again. It's not a great performance, especially not for Britney. You know, we've come to kind of remember so many of her VMA performances and this one is kind of blah. She's wearing this sort of sparkly nude catsuit with diamantes on, which is not as good as the nude catsuit with diamantes that she would wear in the Toxic video. That's very true. But I do quite enjoy the outfit reveal because initially when she's singing Satisfaction, she's wearing like a black glittery pinstripe suit with a fedora on. And then she sort of strips off to start Oops, I Did It Again. And for that, I'll give her some credit. There's also the other kind of set piece from that night at the VMAs was NSYNC's performance of Bye Bye Bye, but they do some other songs. It's going to be me. Uh, I don't remember the first song they do, so that's really telling of how (laughs) memorable it was. Yeah, NSYNC do a kind of medley um, and their heads appear in TV screens um, and you can kind of just see their bodies dancing below. Yeah, and then they sort of spin out from either side of the TVs. It's very difficult to describe, but it's kind of interesting to watch in a very specifically 2000 way. Yeah, and they're all kind of wearing these black leather vests. Mm, Which I I shouldn't be that into, but I was kind of like, huh, good for you, Justin. (laughs) I mean, the one thing that strikes me kind of watching those clips again is that Justin Timberlake is so clearly the star of NSYNC. And, you know, I think people um, really would buy into that narrative. And and Justin was still a couple of years away from breaking free of the band. But you just see it, how the camera responds to him, how much better a dancer he is than everybody else, how much better he is at singing live. Yeah, 100%. Because I think there's also a bit of narrative around the time that NSYNC splits up and people start going solo that... People are like, oh, JC's the star. He's the main guy in NSYNC. And even if you look at the way that they're laid out on stage for this VMA's performance, JC is the one who's in the center. And I think in the same way as like with Take That, everyone thought Gary Barlow was going to be the one who would have the big solo career. Um, So it's kind of interesting that in spite of that perceived narrative around NSYNC, like ultimately you can see how much Justin is like, 
working with the other dancers and there's just something about him to be honest i think the only person who deserves an award for their musical performance from the 2000 vmas is whitney houston who was i don't know if you remember this tara she was introduced by britney and christina and she wasn't performing she just like they introduce her so she can then introduce video of the year and so she briefly sings approximately three bars of i will always love you and everybody kind of stands up there's like a cut to j-lo like getting up out of her seat everyone stands for whitney then she ends up giving the award to eminem so that's your winner that's my winner those three bars of i will always love you that were not an official performance that's my winner So, Simran, this is our last episode of the series, which feels very surreal to be saying. Do you think we've covered everything that you wanted to cover from the year 2000? Well, this was something that we discussed right at the beginning of kind of thinking about all of the pop culture moments that we were going to cover. You can't do it all. You can't sum up an entire year in however many episodes. Really, you can only give a kind of flavor of it. And I think what we've tried to do is give a sense of the breadth of mainstream pop culture from the year 2000 and kind of used it to think about how we got to where we are today. I am really glad that we got to do an episode on Craig David. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we got to give Craig his flowers or depending on how you look at that episode, maybe be not very nice about Craig David. Uh, I also I also think that, you know, thinking about a video game like The Sims was really interesting for me because obviously I hadn't thought about it in any depth at all. I think for me, the film soundtracks episode was so interesting. Just, you know, as someone who often my favorite moments in films are linked to the music used, but I guess I had never really thought about the specifics of how that happens. And also I think comparing High Fidelity 2020 with High Fidelity 2000 was a really interesting way of thinking about how music has changed in terms of how we engage with it. And and how we talk about it as well. Do you think that 2000 is a kind of standout year for pop culture? Or do you think it's a matter of just going deep into any year and kind of finding a wealth of things to choose from? I think it's definitely the latter. You know, I think we could do this with any given year and the deeper you dig the more stuff there is and I think what's particularly interesting is being able to then weave it into what it tells us about culture right now as well so 2000 is an interesting starting point and 2000 culturally certainly in the UK was quite an interesting time in terms of politics and everything else yeah and it's it's worth kind of thinking about the year 2000 as a kind of cultural reset as well because with the new millennium and all of the kind of promise and optimism that that brought the attitude towards you know what was possible was different one thing that we've spoken a lot about during this series is the kind of optimism that I feel like is quite pervasive in the year 2000. And while that's really interesting to consider in 2020, what I think is equally interesting is how that optimism is like flipped on its head in 2001. Yeah, after the events of 9-11, which really kind of fractures the culture and changes it and kind of sets it off in a different direction. 
That's it for this week's episode and for our first series. Thanks so much for journeying back to the year 2000 with us. If you'd like to see us return for a second series, let us know on social media. In the show notes, there's also an audience survey where you can tell us what you liked about the show, how we can improve, and what great pop culture moments from 2001 you'd like us to cover next. Again, the link to the survey is in our show notes, and everyone who fills in the survey will be entered into our giveaway to win a copy of Sylvia Patterson's I'm Not With The Band, a brilliant music memoir packed with amazing celebrity gossip that we mentioned way back in episode one. For more updates, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at MH2020. 2020 is a Message Heard production. Written and presented by me, Tara Joshi, and S-Club's eighth member, Simran Hans. Produced and edited by Jake Oteovich and Emily Wally. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley. Thank you so much again for listening. 